0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Money matters to Jill Schlesinger. And to that end, the certified financial planner covers the economy, markets, investing, and anything else that contains a dollar sign. An Emmy-nominated business analyst for CBS News, Jill has appeared on the network's radio and television stations across the country. She's a weekly guest on NPR's Here and Now, has made appearances on American Public Media's Marketplace Weekend, and contributes to Money Magazine. Uh, That's not all. Jill is also the host of Better Off podcast and the nationally syndicated radio program, Jill on Money. She serves as the senior CFP board ambassador for the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, providing timely personal financial advice, as well as explaining how current economic and financial news impacts our lives. Prior to CBS, Jill spent 14 years as the co-owner and chief investment officer for an independent investment advisory firm. She began her career as a self-employed options trader on the Commodities Exchange of New York. Jill Goddard undergraduate degree at Brown University. So, Jill, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a delight to be here. So, in the spirit of full disclosure, I feel compelled to state that when it comes to the economy, markets, investing, all I can contribute is buy low, sell high. So, clearly, I am so out of my comfort zone. So tell me, at least from the beginning, when and how did you get turned on to the world of finance?
1: My dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, which was sort of like the the peanut exchange next to the New York Stock Exchange Mm -hmm. on Trinity Place. And uh, I had summer jobs that were very different than most of my friends. I grew up in Westchester County in Mm -hmm. New York, and my friends were waitresses and lifeguards, and I was the back clerk for my dad's firm on the American Stock Exchange. So I worked on the floor so in you my commuted years I commuted. <laughs> Actually, the deal was my dad would say my sister and I were both working on Wall Street in the summers. And the deal was, I'll help you get a job. You girls have to drive me to work every day. So we had to—that's <laughs> an interesting trade-off. So we had to learn how to drive um, in city traffic yeah, and, not, no and not be feat. wimpy. Mm-hmm. And you know, with my father reading the paper and then every so often, you know, pu- pushing the paper down and say, "Don't let him cut you off."
0: <laughs> uh, and he was not a Metro North person. Never a never, train
1: person. No, never hated the train. He so what did he do before you guys got licenses? He drove himself. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so I worked there. I worked on the floor for a number of summers, and my dad's best friend, also known as my Uncle Ralph, mm-hmm. was a big trader on the New York Stock Exchange, and I worked for him for a couple of summers. And when I graduated from college, while my friends were trotting off and going to work in investment banking or big sales and trading desks, I was hired by a company to become a trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York, which was the best way to explain that is, do you remember the movie Trading Places? Yes, remember, little, uh, you know, it was like Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Yeah, and it, that was shot on the floor of the commodities exchange. So it's one of those exchanges with big rings of people yelling and screaming. Yeah, uh-huh. and so I was one of those people yelling and screaming, <laughs> and so that's how <laughs> I got my start. And I really thought I was going to be a trader my whole life. And eventually, after you know three or four years, I was like, "Yeah, I don't like this that much." Mm-hmm. And so there was something that was missing for me. Um, I was an athlete in college. I mean, the appeal of trading is that it's like a sport. You They ring the you're bell. You're sprinting from <laughs> yeah. place to place. They ring a bell in the morning. Yeah, you figure right. out, that you play the game. Uh-huh. They ring the bell in the afternoon. The game is over. Did you win or did you lose? Mm-hmm. And it was a very simple formula. And the problem for so me- So it wasn't necessarily the physical part of it. it yeah. Was I mean, just... the physical part was interesting in that the context of it is that if you were an athlete, they always actively recruited athletes for those jobs. Because not only was it physical, but there was an emotional part of it that was very sportsmanlike, that you could fight with someone during the day, during the game, and be friends at the end of the day, that you had—you could withstand losing. Okay. Because losing is part of every single day, that you have a bad trade every day. And um, so there was like a simplicity to it that you could say, oh, my God, I get it. But it was really not enough. I had a, there was a missing component for me, and it was wait, a real person component. I got to interrupt. Do it
0: separate from hiring athletes. Yes. Were they hiring women?
1: Well, there were eight hundred members of the Commodities Exchange in, in 1987. Okay, there were eight women. So, you know, there is a funny thing. I was just talking to a friend of mine who was a, also a, a woman who was a trader. At the time, and we were laughing because I said, Oh my God, like this whole Weinstein thing unraveling. I said, You know, we could never even tell the stories that happened to us, not like sexual harassment in terms but of like, patronizing, but, but the behavior. worst things in the world. I can't even tell you what I was called in front of groups of people. And because that, why? Why can't I tell you? Because this is
0: a family podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> well, that too, but based on what? Uh, your incompetence or your gender?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, when you are a trader Mm -hmm. and you are incompetent at times, you are called out and and you are called out whether you're a man or a woman. But there is a special ring that's literally just kept for women where, I mean, the day-to-day of like my fourth day of trading – uh, someone snapped my bra, or that you stop wearing skirts because people would be like do dopey things, like boys would be like, "Let's put a mirror underneath her legs." Ha, ha, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. So it was a frat house kind of mentality. frenzied mentality. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It, you know, I, as the very empowered feminist of Brown University, would try to call it out, but it's like ridiculous. You couldn't, you couldn't call it out. There would not. It was no effect on behavior. However, I will tell you a great story about this. So before I was actually on the trading floor, I was put through a a rotation almost, all the different trading floors of this organization, and everybody trained us for a week before, the six of us, so it was a 12-week cycle. The last cycle is that you're up on a trading desk, which is really where the fanciest, most accomplished traders are. They're sitting around a big desk, mm-hmm. and they're making trades for the firm. And it's a more refined environment than a trading floor. It's still tough, but it's not – it's certainly not, not – as much of not, a free-for-all. Exactly. And uh, I was – you know, I was very young. Uh, I'm 21 years old – 20 years old mm-hmm. at the time. And I made a mistake that was a very honest mistake. It wasn't even like a dopey – like, wow. Anyone could thinking. have made that mistake? Anyone who was a young trader would have made the mistake. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I made the mistake and my boss stood up, pounded the receiver of the phone on the desk repeatedly and stood up in front of this whole trading room where the senior most traders and the CEO of the firm were sitting, stood up and said, Jill, you're the biggest effing, he used the word, idiot I have ever Worked with or hired. I cannot believe what you just did. Oh my god! Can you imagine being twenty years old and hearing that? And it's like your first couple of months of work. Does it seem as you're telling me this like it was yesterday? Yeah, it was funny. I mean, because it was funny. I, it was funny, beca- funny, strange. I mean, but it was funny because it turned into something else. So now I sort of smile and I tell the story because there's a whole like um, there's like mishigas in my family around what happened <laughs> to that story, but um, so. What did you do? I stood still and I said to myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I waited 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I said, uh, you know, Mike, is it okay if I I just need to use the restroom? He's like, yeah, fine, whatever. Like as if nothing ever happened. He he blew up and he's back to where he was
0: five minutes before I go into the bathroom Mm -hmm.
1: and I start to cry. Of course. And then somebody else walks in, the only other woman on the trading desk, and she says, Jill... And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She said, you okay? I said, yes. Yeah. She goes, can you come out? Yep. And she said, look, I want to apologize on behalf of the firm. That is not behavior that we endorse. And she says, I'm going to make you feel really good in this moment, and I'm going to show you why. And she walked me past. The, the CEO had a little like sort of encased office in, that everyone could see. It was almost like a little bubble, right? Yeah. yeah. And in there was my boss getting chewed out by the CEO of the firm. For what he did to for you? For what he did to me. Not that he ever apologized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, we don't do that here. That is not what this organization is about. And this is 30 years ago, so this mm-hmm. is a big mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. said, and Peter, the CEO, just found that to be so distasteful. Did Peter witness this? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so he saw it firsthand.
1: And he said... And, and he really was a very – he was a gentleman and he was a lovely guy. He also knew my father. Mm-hmm. Not that that was a part of the issue, but he so, – so let me tell you the funny part of it. Yeah. So i tell I'm my, waiting. <laughs> I tell my dad the story and my dad's a traitor and he knows this. You know, he knows this environment. And I tell him the story. And I'm just like, so mortifying. And my father said to me, you know what, honey? You're going to have to toughen up. You want to be a trader? This is what it's about. You're going to have many more experiences like this. I need you to get a tougher skin. And like, you know what? You go in there, you do your job, and don't make a mistake. And that was it. Okay. Now, fast forward five years. Okay. I somehow, like, and actually, I don't work on the trading floor anymore. But I become friends with that guy who calls me the effing idiot. Like, we become friends. Okay. He comes into the city. Okay. He was moved back to Chicago. He comes into the city. We have dinner. Mm-hmm. He says to me, "Did I ever tell you about what happened after that? Like first week of that, that I was like where? I guess I was like mean to you or something." That's <laughs> what he said. I He says, "Did I ever tell you that story?" I said, "No." What well, are you talking yeah. about? He says, "Well, Peter chews my ass out in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm completely mortified because he was a young trader. He's only like five or six years older than I was." And he said, "And then." A day later, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who works on the American Stock Exchange. And my the friend says, hang on a second. Someone wants to talk to you. And my father gets on the phone and he goes, hi, my name is Al Schlesinger. I don't know if you know me. My daughter's working for you. And he said, yes, I know who you are. I know that you work at this big firm. He says, Mike... If you ever talk to my daughter that way again, I will personally come to the trading floor. I will take your head. I will shove it up your ass so far it will come out of your mouth. And I will ruin your reputation on Wall Street for the rest of your career. And he hung up.
0: And he never told you?
1: Never told me. Oh, my God. What a story. <gasps> <laughs> so oh that is – so I told that story. My dad died four years ago, and I told that story as part of my um, – when we were – you know, we were all – it was a very small thing. My dad was a strange guy, and he was, like, micromanaged his funeral. And so he's like, I only want these 35 people at the service.
0: So it was part of your eulogy? So when
1: I eulogized him, I told that story Is like, that's kind of like the quintessential Albie. Mm, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like, you're going to be tough. You're going to do mm-hmm. your thing. I Mm -hmm. want you to know you can do everything. But on the side, I'm going to be like your daddy. And he did the right thing.
0: I think so. I did. Mike was always very nice to me after that. (laughs) But you know what? It's also sort of telling about that story. He chewed you out for your, quote, incompetence, not for your gender. Right? Not because. Theoretically. Do you think
1: that if Tom Smith did what you did? He may have. He may have done it anyway. And he may have done that. I can't speak to that. I know that mm-hmm. from a gender perspective, mm-hmm. the the issue on the trading floor was that you definitely had to be three times as good as the guy standing because, next to you. Because you have breasts. and Because you have breasts. And there was a hazing quality to it. You also had to have the wherewithal to stand up to the pressure. And the women who survived really did get like you're tough, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it served me well in that there really was nothing. There is nothing that can happen in your a career after that that matches that kind of crazy, animalistic. And what a pitch! And such a pitch, you yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And 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 then you know, you, then you do it to someone else, and you huh. say, "Oh, I hate myself." But I'm
0: curious as to something like that being called out that publicly and verbally berated that way. What was that like in contrast to somebody anybody, you know,
1: you know, squeeze your butt as you walked by? Or- so you know, on a trading floor, especially when it's very busy, it is physical. So that I didn't, no one squeezed my tush. Yeah, no one fondled me. Right. There was a lot of pushing and shoving. Uh huh. I think there was more pushing and shoving around women to see if you could take it. I mean, look, I was an athlete. I played soccer and lacrosse in college. Mm-hmm. I played soccer and basketball. Like, I could throw an elbow like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Like So mm-hmm. don't worry about it. But just to give you an idea of some of the frenzied part of this, when I was on the floor, I was living on the Upper East Side. I lived in an apartment 401. My sister lived below me, apartment 301. We were very, very close. And my only sister. And one day I came home from work and I was still wearing my trading jacket. And I walked into her apartment and I said, she said, what happened to you? I said, what are you talking about? She goes, what's all over your jacket? Did you forget to put your trading jacket back? And I said, oh, I just got the hell out of there. I couldn't stand it. Well, on my trading jacket were big splotches because two guys behind me got into a fight. One guy headbutted another guy. Blood splurted out all over everyone standing below them. And we just kept trading. That's, because it's almost like all in a day's work. I mean, that was so weird and that would never happen again. But honestly, it wasn't that strange. Okay. So to say okay. that there are two grown men mm-hmm. heading headbutting one another, all blood day's is flirting, work. And I remember this very well. I turned around and I said, Nikki, are you okay? And then someone on the other side of the ring said a half bid for a hundred. I turned away and I said, sold. <laughs> and I never saw those guys again. I don't know what happened. Like, they went to the hospital. I don't know. But one guy came back. He had stitches three days later, and the other guy never came back. Okay. This is so alien to me.
0: What's also alien to me is what it must have been like to be in such a minority. I'm not necessarily only wanting to politicize this, mm-hmm. but I'm older than you are. And I can't. what's not lost to me is of all the great number of men that work there, you're one of eight. I mean, did you not say to yourself, wow, Jill, you're really an anomaly?
1: Okay. So most of my life, because I was a good athlete, I was oh, around a boys okay. a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a, you know, a, a nice Jewish suburb where little Jewish girls were getting bat mitzvah, yes. And I was playing sports all the time. Mm-hmm. And I literally, like my my, my parents were like, do you want to do the bat mitzvah thing? I'm mm-hmm. like, nah, i got too many practices. <laughs> and they're like, okay. <laughs> no, they're very religious. But, I mean, so when there were a lot of girls around me who were worried about what the theme of their bat mitzvah would be, I really didn't care. Yeah, and right. so I was mm-hmm. really out of it. And so so much of my primary years were spent around boys. I was incredibly comfortable around boys. And, uh, and so being in an environment like that was not so alien to me. Okay. That said, you know, I'm a classist snob. I'm, I'm a product of like an a, an upper class breeding. Mm-hmm. So seeing what I saw mm-hmm. was very different than anything I had ever experienced. Because even though I worked in my dad's trading firm and I was in the back with the ladies from Staten Island and Brooklyn and Queens who commuted in, like, I knew what that was. but. That wasn't who I was, and I sort of got exposed to it, and it was good. But when I got to the trading floor, and one guy said to me, oh, wh- where'd you go to college? I said, Brown University. Well, I'm very snobby, right? <laughs> right. Mm, blah, 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 blah. And I, And he says, really, where is that? I said, that's uh, Rhode Island. He goes, oh, isn't that like an Ivy League school? <laughs> and I said, yeah, like, I think I'm big, you know, I think I'm a big swing, and you know what? Mm-hmm. He goes, really, you can take that Ivy League degree and shove it up your ass down here. Yeah, but who asked him? But the thing that's instructive about that is... That was an important moment for me because, like, who did care where I went to school? Why did I have to wear that, like, as a badge of honor? Like, who cares, really? So it was good for me in that mm-hmm. it broke down this idea that, like, you have to go to the best schools and you have to do the best. And, like, everybody is, is talented. On that trading floor, it is like the Wild West. No one cares where you went to school. No one cares where you came from. Mm-hmm. Do you perform? Can you stand up? Can you do it? It was a great – it was almost like being an athlete in that way. So mm-hmm. that part of it was You great. had to put out. You You, did, if you will. Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, everything can have a double meaning. I get that. So you came with a good foundation. Not
1: everybody has that. I think that having a good sense of yourself and having someone who believes in you is incredibly important. And it doesn't have to be your parent because Mm -hmm. I have very dear friends whose parents don't get them at all. And they had a coach who believed in them. They had a teacher who believed in them. Mm-hmm. They had a first boss who believed in them. And, you know, essentially to have just one person who cares can really help give you that sense of worth. And I think that's, that is the beauty of it. And, you know, it's so funny. So I think that the, the trading floor experience was one that it was quite formative. Take me on your journey to how we got to where we are today. Oh, my God. So I was on the trading floor. I was dating this guy. He was at Brown Medical School. And so I said... "No, so You're having
0: a long-distance relationship. We're having a long-distance
1: relationship. And, uh, and we, we decide we're going to get married. There's a whole long story. And, we, like, if we did this with, instead of having a cup of water, and instead next time I come back and I have, uh, let's say, an amber liquor next to me, <laughs> okay. it would be better. So we'll do a part two. Part two. Okay. This will uh, be the tease. So I moved back up to Providence, Rhode Island mm-hmm. to be with him. We got married to be with him okay. for his last year of medical school. I mean, the story about that is that I made a crap load of money one month. My dad came to my apartment and said to me, oh my, he's looking through my trading sheets. He goes, oh my God, yeah, such a great month. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in one month. I was 23. Good God. And so I was said <sighs> to him, I said, oh my God. I, I mean, like, he's like, oh, this is great. And so I looked at him. I go, yeah. He says, what do you mean? Yeah. I said, I don't know. He says, look, honey, this is not a job where you're saving lives. You're not contributing to society. The best part of this job is that you've got good hours, you make a lot of money, and you've got a ton of flexibility for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But if you can't get into making money, there's a lot of downsides to this job. Mm-hmm. So you better make a decision if this is not what you like. He goes, well, what do you like? You know. So I said, I don't know. And I started crying, and I felt bad because I was supposed to go take over his business eventually, and that was the whole game plan long term. Mm-hmm. and." I said, I don't think I can do this. He goes, well, what do you like to do? At the time I was uh, actually volunteering at Sloan Kettering. I was working in the pediatric cancer ward twice a week. And I said, I love going into the P pe- I love that. He goes, You want to go to medical school? I said, No, I don't know, but I feel like I think like I need to do something where I feel like a connection to people. He goes, I don't know what that is. Like he just, he didn't know. He's a trader. Right. So another year went by and then I was like, you know, I'm gonna get married. So he's like, well, maybe you go up to Rhode Island, figure out what you want to do. And so I go to Rhode Island. And by the way, that marriage didn't last so long. A year, a month, and a day. That'll be the name of my novel, my memoir. It'll be like Amy Tan, write a memoir that no one can believe. And when I was up in Rhode Island, I was farting around doing different things. I didn't know what to do. I just got a job. Mm-hmm. I did get a job. I was selling, doing this, doing that. And then I stumbled upon a guy who had a financial advisory firm. And it was just teeny, teeny, tiny firm. He goes, why don't you come in and join me? And I'm like, ugh, you and your cock, a little company? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I, this you know, is beneath not, me. This is I'm not doing mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. But I spent the day with him. And he said, uh, just hang out with me for the day. Mm-hmm. Young guy is my age at the time. So we we're in our 20s. And uh, I said, well, let me see. All right, I'll go in and see. So I go in and I kind of dig it because he is giving real advice to people who need help, financial advice. I like the idea of giving people actionable advice. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird. The crossroads of my upbringing really demystified money to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't think money was such a big deal. Right. I, think people, I knew people who had a crap load of money and I mm-hmm. knew people who didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And I knew people who were really smart who didn't bank money. They did other things. So that was not... An issue for me, and I realized that part of what I could bring to an investment advisory experience is that because I don't have that, I don't have judgment. I didn't have any of that. That I could be good at it. Gotcha. And so that was very appealing. So I did. That was the thing I did for 14 years. I knew how to manage money. I knew like the money part. He taught me the financial planning part. I became a certified financial planner, so I could learn like holistically what does that mean, and. You know, he was came from a big sales model, and we were trying to get clients. And he would say, "Let's just call and let's do this and do that." And I said, "Oh, this is for the birds. This calling out of the blue." So he says, "Well, I don't know. How else do you think we should get clients?" I said, "You know what? I have a my I have a good friend. He's a general manager of a radio station." I said, "Maybe we'll get on the air there." Mm -hmm. And I had uh, I had worked at a radio station when I first got up to Rhode Island because when I was in college. I actually thought about media. Mm-hmm. I was in college and I worked at the NBC owned and operated television station for my four years of college. She was called Channel 10 WJAR TV. On air? Um, no, I was just doing production. Okay and all I wanted to do was be a sports producer. Huh. So I was like the assistant to the sports guy. So I was flirting with that and then I ended up doing Wall Street. So when I came back up to Rhode Island, I go meet with my friends in TV and they said, well, you know, you're too, you don't have any experience. Go talk to our... You should go into sales. That's what they said. Go into sales. So I went to radio and I did radio sales and I met people there and I understood like, wow, this is so powerful. People go on the air and people immediately, the listener's like, you're an expert. That's right. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then fast forward when I was like launching this business, we decided we were going to try to be on the radio. We started doing a radio show. It went really well. Was it call-in? It was Mm call-in radio. And we started getting business. And the business was like growing like by leaps and bounds. And then a guy calls me up from the TV station where I was an intern during college. And he says, I host the show that goes on before the Today Show on Channel 10, the NBC affiliate here. Would you be a guest on my show? and I started to go on TV. And so I was doing TV and radio as just a means to get new clients. But they were natural acts for you? Yeah. That was a funny thing. Maybe a couple years into the call-in radio show, which, by the way, we bought the radio time. A few years in, a new regime, you know, radio was turning over all the time. So the new guy comes in, and he calls me up. He says, I want to talk to you about notes on your show. I said, I don't work for you. He goes, what do you mean you don't work for me? I just heard you on the air. I said, I don't work for you. I'm okay. That's my show. Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, my God. He says, hang on a second. He talks to somebody. He goes, listen, can I treat you like you work for me because I want to make your show better? (laughs) And I said, sure. And so he, who is, you know, he's a great guy. His name is Bill Hess. He's now uh, runs programming. He was at WMAL in Washington, D.C. and does a lot of stuff over there. And the woman who was then the news director at the NBC affiliate both said to me, you're really good at this. Listen to us. We'll make you better. And I said, I don't care. You can make me as good as you want as long as I get business from this. Right. That's all I cared about. So I did that and I listened and I what? I did get better. So I started dating someone in New York and was going back and forth between Rhode Island and New York. and. The NBC news director said to me, you know, I know somebody over at Fox News Channel. I think I'm going to just send them your reel. I'm going to send them some stuff you do. I think you should do that. And I met with a producer, a guy who produced for Neil Cavuto. And Mm -hmm. he said, I'd love to have you on the air. You think you're really great. I started doing stuff for Fox. Fox introduced Fox Business News. While well, you're still having yep. your job? yeah okay. Going back and forth and back okay. and forth, managing money, meeting with clients, coming to New York, So you're dancing fun. as fast as you can, aren't Absolutely. you, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that I wanted to move back to New York. I mean, I'm a total New Yorker. My family was in New York. And at the time, I even had spoken to my business partner about this. And we had already sold the company. We were being managers of this company for now. And um, in the beginning, say two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Now the financial crisis is starting to—the uh, very murmurs, uh, yeah, small murmurs—and yeah. so I was on Fox, and then someone from CNN saw me on Fox, and then I would do something on CNN, and then someone, as a as a as, talking head, just a talking head, but mm-hmm. not paid. And then somebody at CBS called me up one day and said, "You know, are you the same person I just heard on the radio on my way to the Cape?" <laughs> I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we're doing a story. You seem to break down very complicated financial things in a way that and people speak can English. understand. So would you come do it? So I did my first segment. The producer's name is Guy Campanile at CBS. And his the talent that he produced for is a guy named Anthony Mason, Of who's course, wonderful mm-hmm. Anthony, who's a very dear friend of mine. And they started using me in a lot of their pieces during the financial crisis. And then when Anthony was pulling his hair out of his head because he was working so hard they would call him in the middle of the night and he'd say, well, why don't you call this woman Jill Schlesinger? She can come on the show in the morning. I'm just so, I'm wasted. I can't do that. And do
0: you get paid for those appearances? No,
1: I did not. And at the beginning of 2009, I kind of knew that I was going to be done with the company and I was sort of getting ready to just say, I'm I'm out of here. I'm leaving Providence for good. And someone called me from CBS and said, we're launching a new website We would like you to come in and help us out. You know, we need like a face and voice. Mm -hmm. We think you would be good. They really want somebody who has real personal experience dealing with real people, right? So I go in and I meet with all the talent people. And I said, this is great. I just sold my company. I just need to like chill out for a few months. So what do you, you know, that was that. And then three weeks later, I signed a contract. Isn't that crazy? And so I worked first for CBS Interactive on the product and I helped launch this product called Money Watch, CBS Money Watch. Sure, sure. I was the person who would appear on the CBS programs Mm -hmm. and on the radio Mm -hmm. on behalf of Money Watch. Right. And then a few years after that, I kind of made the move and I did the opposite thing that most people do. Like Most people say like, oh, I want to end up in digital because that's where all the action is. Whereas many of my friends in the news division said, digital is different. They don't value talent in quite the same way. We think you should come over to the news division. And so I did the opposite thing ah. and I went from new media to old media. There I am. And that's it today. So I do all those things and and now, thank God, I get paid for it. I
0: guess it must be really interesting to look back...
1: Yeah, and sigh. I always think in terms of investments in many ways that I have a very diversified portfolio. I really do, and I I like that. I have a contract with CBS, but I'm not an employee of CBS, and I'm very clear about why I want that, because I want the ability to come on and go do your podcast and not have to ask permission to do it. Got you. I want to be able to host my own podcast and host my own radio show and write for the Tribune company and work with the CFP board. Like, I love all these different pieces, so I love my... My media job is Phenomenal. I am one of the luckiest people in the world. Well, it's kind of in a way being the mistress
0: of your own fate. And I'm always curious about this. What's that like with the eleventh hour phone call?
1: We need you tomorrow. Be here at you know six thirty in the morning you or know, whatever. I wake up very early because I have like a almost like a split schedule. So I had to do a lot of stuff for CBS in the early morning and then after the market closes. So I have okay. like a split schedule mm-hmm. like that. When I first started, I would get woken up in the middle of the night, like at three, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning because the Asian markets would be down by five uh, percent, right that and that's a little bit more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I was up all night election night, like all night because markets were going on this big roller coaster. Uh-huh. But you know, it's in a weird way you get used to it. You get used to a lot of things. well,
0: I mean, I had I used to do morning drive, and I would get up at three o'clock in the morning to get to
1: work. That's what you do, right. The funny part of it is that, you know, I got great training at CBS because I, did a ton of work on evening news on the weekends when nobody would work on the weekends. It's like nobody wants to go in on the weekends. I was like I'll go do it. <laughs> I think this is so interesting because uh-huh. um, what I learned from really fantastic executive producers, So you know, there was actually a series of women, Pat Shevlin, Jennifer Stevens, uh, Sharon Hoffman, these women who were the executive producers of the weekend show really helped me craft kind of, yeah. mm-hmm. a, a very specific – quick message. But I'm used to that from radio also, because in radio, yeah. there you are all do, these time constraints. Everything yes. is a time constraint. Yes. Sometimes I do my best work in a much narrower time horizon. Mm-hmm. If you have to do a piece and the piece is two minutes, sometimes I find that that's more efficient than three and a half. So I think the most effective use of me is to be sitting with an anchor or anchors mm-hmm. and explaining why this news is important to the person watching. And I and you speak English in responding and I, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think I'm good at, mm-hmm. I, and I love doing it. And I kind of understand what the listener viewer wants because I have this podcast and I have to take calls from that mm-hmm. and people don't understand, like this is some kabuki theater that I do. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is actually talk radio. It's a very old media, yes, but don't right. worry, it works. Right. And I have a call in radio show. And so I know what is... People are not... When they're talking about their money, I can tell you that 80% of the time, it's the exact same questions. There are different characters. There's funny, char- there's funny conversations, but they're the same questions. And they're the same questions that persist because this is not It's a finite world. Mm-hmm. There aren't so many weirdo things going on. There are two chilling moments in my career. I'd like to know them. Career, mm-hmm. Okay. And we just passed the 30th anniversary of one. So the first chilling moment was the crash of 1987 when I was a young trader. So let me just put this in perspective. On October 19th, 1987, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 508 points, which doesn't sound like that big because it's just the points. That was a 22.6% move in one day. That would be as if at the end of the day today, the Dow, which is trading at 23,000, was down 5,000 points. Okay, It was huge. Even I
0: can grasp that. The
1: entire financial system almost got wiped out. Mm -hmm. It was teetering on the edge. It was scary. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable. I saw grown men cry. I would work on the floor of the commodities exchange. I'd run across the street to go help my dad's firm out. And they came, you know, inches away from going out of business. Mm -hmm. And they survived. So fast forward to 2008. In the fall of 2008, we had a financial crisis that was extraordinarily linked to that predicate 1987. And in in 2008, I don't believe regular people understood how close the whole financial system was to caving in. Mm -hmm. It was really unbelievable. When I tell you that we were days away, days, but for the miraculous efforts of some individuals, but we were days away from having Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, every large bank investment firm going out of business, becoming insolvent, and having a 20-year depression. We were days away from that. It was unbelievable. And that was a oh my God, heart stopping moment. And the thing that's incredibly interesting about that time is as I th- I'm i a student of history and I like market history. Most people don't. No mm-hmm. one wants to go back and remember. Maybe this is also very Jewish. So let me think about the absolute worst thing possible that could happen. <laughs> right, and let right. me contemplate it for a right, while. Right, right, let me go there. Then right, I'll walk, walk right, back from there. Right, right, right. And what's interesting about it is that in all the conversations about regulation and all the conversations about where we are and rolling about regulation, it's still a business that's built around animal spirits. And animal spirits means like the desire to make money. Mm -hmm. And animal spirits do need to be reined in. And so what, what I think that the lessons not learned from these huge events are really unfortunately make it more likely that we have another huge event. Those two events shape me very specifically um, in terms of my day-to-day life Mm -hmm. and how I am around money. I have a very healthy respect for risk. I have a very healthy respect for bad things happening, just being in the business for 14 years with regular people. Say, hey, you know, oh, you know what, Sandy, you got your own business. Could you get some disability insurance? Nah, I don't need it. And then someone gets diagnosed with MS three (laughs) years later. Right. You know, so, like, I do think bad things happen. I don't live in just the bad. Mm -hmm. But some of my friends... Well, there's this awareness that you have that the average Joan may not. and, And, you know, and for every average Joan out there who's listening... Most of the financial world can be very easily explained with a plus sign and a minus sign, sometimes a multiplication sign and an equal sign. That's it. You are overthinking it. You don't have to know how to build an algorithm. You don't have to know understand You know why a collateralized debt uh, obligation almost blew up the world. All you need to know is that in 2008, there was a ton of people taking way too much risk and not contemplating the worst case scenario. That's mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. That spelled disaster very quickly. And so, anytime, if anyone out there is listening, and you say, "I'm dumb about this," and don't first of all, don't say that out loud, and never say that in front of a man. Yeah, because right. I don't want you to ever say that. And don't say it in front of your daughters. Listen to my show. But if I mean that, that most of this stuff, it is complicated because people who are in the industry shroud themselves in nonsensical jargon. Do you ever go to a doctor? And sometimes you wake up and you say to yourself, that doctor was so fabulous. Mm -hmm. He said to me, you got a growth in your belly. And you're like, oh, okay. And then there's another one who says, well, you have a subdural hematoma. Oh, God, don't
0: don't even go there. Oh, yes, because I've had
1: my share of that. Oh, I certainly know that. And then, you know, you say, Mm -hmm. well, that's so nice. It's a jargon-free zone. Great. (laughs) I hope that people understand that all this stuff, the reason why it's so difficult is that really it's emotional. It's not that it's hard. I could show you how an options contract works Uh in two seconds, okay? Uh The reason this stuff is hard is that we conflate money and emotions, and money becomes this very physical thing on which we can sort of map our emotions. And so sometimes someone would walk into my office and they would be like crying and this, that, and the other thing. And I said, You don't need me. You need a shrink. (laughs) I mean, Uh I'll tell you what to do with your money, but that's not why you're crying. You're crying because of a whole other set of issues. What a great way to end.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Oh, I really, it was great. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.